0: Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative Giants are talented Renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, everyone. I am super excited to have Todd Cashin on the show with us today. Todd is a world-recognized authority on well-being, strengths, social relationships, stress, and anxiety. In other words, the world that you as a creative giant live in every day. Um, and he has published more than 150 scholarly articles and is the author of Curious and co-author of the new book, The Upside of Your Dark Side. Why being your whole self, not just your good self, it drives success and fulfillment. That's by Hudson Press. Guys, I've been reading that book and it's been blowing my mind. So it's definitely one of my must read books. Um, We'll talk a little bit about it going in, but I'm so excited about this book. Dr. Cashton is professor of psychology and and a senior scientist at the Center for the Advancement of Wellbeing at George Mason University. His research has been featured in several media outlets including the New York Times and the Washington Post. He's a twin and has twin seven-year-old daughters. They're seven already? Last time they were like four. Now there's there's a two-year-old. Wow. You're prolific in many ways with plans to rapidly populate the world with great conversationalists. What I love about Todd is that he says the things other people want to but are afraid to. I also have a huge man crush on him because he's managed to be a prolific academic but more so than that he his research it, his research is guided by science but not constrained by science which means he can do all of this really great research and still talk to the rest of us um, without you know talking down to us and that's such a valuable skill um, so Todd, I'm super excited to have you here and thanks so much for the work that you do and for being on the show today
1: Oh it's I'm so excited for this conversation because I know you will take me into uncomfortable twisted directions so thank you
0: keep the bar pretty low, right? And we'll see where it goes from there. So I first met Todd, I believe, back in 2009. Um, I think it was at a Wealthy Thought Leader event or somewhere around there. Vancouver. Yeah, it was in Vancouver. So tell us a little bit about how you managed to be um, this really prolific academic researcher, but also now you've written two books, you've got two twins, and, or you've got a twin, a pair of twins and now a two-year-old. How do you manage to, to really keep your focus on all these types of things? Because that, that's really the question I see when I see another article come out by you or another book. I'm like, wow, how's he doing this?
1: Well, one thing that I'll say from the get-go, thinking of, of your audience, is it's hard. Uh, I think the hardest thing for me in life is I have two values that are at the center of my existence that are of fundamental importance, which is one is... Raising my children to have all the advantages. I didn't have so I want them to be wiser I want them to think clearly. I want them to be Sensitive to situations that they can use profanity and punch me whenever they want to as their dad But don't do the same thing when you're in the classroom in second grade and then simultaneously I have this core value which is to inspire people of what's the best press practice based on the best science of how to improve the quality of their lives their relationships and and organizations that they work in and Having those two values simultaneously is challenging because you know my wife will tell me regularly, "I want you to choose our family first all the time." And the argument we often have is, "I say I can't choose." That I refuse to compartmentalize my life. I've got lots of love. I love love. I study love. I um, <laughs> write about love, and I have two things that I love. Three things actually. One is is doing the work that can inspire people. With the science is the backing. The second is taking care of these kids, and the third one is the relationships I have. You know, meeting people like you, who are these young creative superstars who are innovating all over the world. I'm collecting interesting people. I mean, this is this is my hobby and my free time. So it's challenging. I think what makes it work for me is I have this thing uh, that Tibetan monks call the dailies, which is at the beginning of every single day. There are certain things that I have to get done, and I almost have this military discipline without being in the military. So, 30 minutes every day. I'm going to read something that has nothing to do with my field of inquiry, and I'm often reading your friends, so Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss and you know Pam Slim. I mean, I'm reading their books. 45 minutes minimum. I'm doing core exercises. I'm doing one-legged Romanian deadlifts. I'm in the gym, making sure that somehow I don't lose an extra two inches during my 40s, which I'm supposed to. And then fourth is. I'm gonna make sure that I spend at least twenty minutes face to face, no technology, no screaming kids in the house with my wife, and we're gonna to talk to each other about what matters. And once I get those things down in on a daily discipline level, it starts to get easier to make progress towards these things.
0: Yeah. Wow, you you dove right in there. Um I I really appreciate you pulling out the challenges because you know that's what those challenges are the same ones that um really get a lot of other creative giants because we are those polymathic sort of we're into a lot of different things and we hate choosing hate choosing just this one thing like why don't you just I have people (laughs) I used to have people and they they don't say it anymore because they figured I stopped listening but like why don't you just do this one thing and do it really well and I'm like life is not just about doing one thing really well I'm more than just you know this one little thing and so definitely appreciate that it sounds like Do you use your sort of – I call it a morning routine. You might not necessarily call it that, but it seems you've got some habit stacking going on in the sense where one leads into the other that leads into the other. Have you found that that to be um, pretty much how that works for you or is it just kind of like they don't necessarily follow sequentially like that. They just need to get done.
1: I, I like the way you describe it. So we don't read the same books, which is why I like these kind of conversations more than when I talk to my peers. Um, it's not stacked, it's not an order. Often it's hard to fit in that workout. Sometimes I'm actually on a yoga mat at 11:30 at night while the Walking Dead is playing in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I am you know, I'm talking to friends at three o'clock in the morning by Skype and I'm whispering in the basement so that I don't wake anybody up. and sometimes I'm having a glass of whiskey with the friend from Australia because I haven't gotten to see them in, in nine and a half months. So it's, it's, there's no rigid um, structure for how my day is. so I don't really have a morning routine. I read that book daily routines about scientists writers and architects and it seems to me pretty much if you look across 300 years the key is wake up really early in the morning and start writing and you'll be successful so according to that I shouldn't be successful because I'm with two-year-old Violet at 530 in the morning and I'm not a happy camper I'm not writing but I am ideas are stirring around as we're playing with blocks and we're talking about letters uh, I do make sure with military discipline that I accomplish that list of dailies every single day. And I mean, the science is clear that when we're doing things that aren't pleasurable, but they're meaningful, they require, um, and discipline in your life for them to work. And that's kind of, that's the idea of habits is habits ends up being more beneficial. If you want to improve the quality of your life, than it comes to the, the superficial lukewarm advice, which is just follow your passions and everything will be fine. And you'll have energy and great relationships and you'll love your work as much on Mondays, as much as you enjoy going out with your friends on Saturdays, which just I think adds a level of pressure that doesn't quite fit with reality.
0: Yeah. um, You know, I haven't really gone on a whole riff about the follow your passion thing um, because I I would get into a lot of trouble, especially in our sphere of you know, um, a lot of creative people that are just like, follow your passion. But do you ever notice that as people who say that after they're successful? right they're like follow your passion after they've actually acquired the means and the resources and done the grind to get there like you don't see people before grind like just follow your passion well well maybe they do and they're just you know don't get anywhere so we don't hear from them but you know that's a romantic idea that i think um truly romantic meaning come from the romantic era that um needs to be tempered with unfortunately what we're what we might call self-discipline or self-mastery really to get anywhere so i think when you Combine It's this really odd tension where where, when you combine self-discipline and self-mastery on your passions, you actually make a lot of progress. But when it's just follow your passions without the mastery, then um, not so much for most people, it seems.
1: Well, I think you hit the thing that's bothered me the most as a scientist and also as as an avid reader, which is most authors, most writers, most creators, um, they, they pick their pet topic. And they've run it into the ground with 400 pages or seven years of research and not recognizing that often there's synergy between multiple characteristics or behaviors that you require a little bit of all of them. And so if you think about, you know, what's the, which I don't have no idea, but I'm of great interest, which is what's the formula to to being a creative giant? What's the formula to being productive? And not getting divorced three times, and your kids still love you. And when they write their autobiographies, they'll mention that you were responsible for their emotional and social development. I mean, what's the what's the formula for getting there? What we know is it's not going to be just grit. It's not going to be just creativity. It's not going to be about just being zestful and energetic. It's not going to be about just being sociable. And it's not going to be about. Um, spending time creating information, synthesizing information, and reading information, part of it's going to be about actually living an interesting life and doing things and then finding time to reflect on those. And there's a combination of these elements, and there's some things that are missing that together give you an understanding of what, what are the requirements for a person to be creative enough where they create products that themselves are creative. And this is kind of the some of the journeying that I'm doing on as a scientist, I can test all of the adages and all of the, the ideas and and stereotypes that people have, and what we find is some of them are true, and some of them are really false.
0: Yeah, I think part of the challenge is, from a scientific perspective, who we were looking from at, the assumption is that there is a replicable pattern that will fit across a wide swath of people, and what it, you know, the more I'm in the world doing this, I'm like, you know, there are some principles that in application work pretty well but everyone has their own sort of mark on the world they, they have their own set of tools and it seems to me most of the journey is around that person creating both the environment in which their tools you know are best able to be used right so for instance I I figured out that being in academia for me was not the right outlet right um, just because there was more that I wanted to do and, and it's funny because I was in philosophy you would think that I would have the broadest range of things to talk about, right? But in some ways, the field of philosophy is really narrow. Like there are certain areas where I would start talking about things, which would be, you know, economic, you know, economic virtue or things like that. And they're like, well, that's, yeah, the economists handle that, right? We we don't really do that here. And I'm like, how the hell do we not do this here? What do we do, <laughs> right? Um. So the con the the environment in which my tool sets, um, were in just didn't work. It didn't it, it? I wasn't going to live a full life there. So I knew I had to get out. And do what I'm doing for now. And then, granted, at some point in time, I might go back and be adjunct or something like that. But so I think part of it is crafting the environment. Um, the other one is really looking at one's own tool set and saying what's the best use of these rather than what's Todd's sc- sc- uh, skill set because I can't be Todd, Todd can't be me. Um, you know, to to really throw back to Pam and body of work, like what have you done in the past that you can leverage? How are you going to pull all these things together? But you can see as we start doing this, you get this really um, unique thumbprint in the world of what it takes for you to thrive. And that's one of the reasons I really love doing the show because we get to see different thumbprints and say, you know, there are a lot of the same challenges. How Todd handles that is different. How Seth handles that is different. How Pam handles that is different. Uh, Which means, if you're listening to this, how you handle it needs to be different too.
1: Well, I like how you're bioengineering this. And we're kind of building a Lego block set between the two of us here. I mean, for me, you know, working with students and now working with organizations. I just got back from Dubai where we we actually work with Standard Chartered Bank of 70 people from around the world who they think are going to be the managers in the next 10 years. And what, what you discover is whatever content you have bringing in, it has to be combined with what are the things – what are the ways that you get motivated? So what are the buttons that inc- that are rewarding for you? What are the buttons where punishment is actually threatening to you? And what you find is, is that some of the things – and this is what led me to writing this book. Some of the things that are the motivational pushpins for people are uncomfortable for them, especially uncomfortable for other people. When you talk about if I'm experienced – if today we were having our conversation and I was a little bit downtrodden because – just the weather, just maybe I had a bad conversation with a friend, and maybe I just didn't have a good weekend, didn't meet my expectations. And so a lot of people are uncomfortable with other people's discomfort, much less us having a low tolerance for distress. But the other thing is, a lot of things aren't socially appropriate, and this is important, Is some of the things that we know are successful are useful in very particular situations and aren't in other situations. So, we know, for example, that if you're an entrepreneur or if you're in the business world or a parent or a romantic partner or a friend, that sometimes narcissism and a little in certain parts of narcissism are actually better than being kind and compassionate and virtuous. And yet, I've gotten so much friction on this message despite I've got dozens of studies that I can cite because people don't like this message which is why wouldn't I be kind all the time why wouldn't I smile all the time there's always a time to give someone a lollipop to make negotiations for a house go a little bit more smoothly to bring someone's anger down a notch so they can be a little bit more focused in the conversation and take my perspective and what I tell them is you know, we've actually tested this, and sometimes a deviation from happiness and kindness is exactly what's required if you have good situational awareness. Mm-hmm. Like we know that if you're in a hard negotiation with somebody, that you're not interested in forming a long-term relationship, when you're happy in that conversation and you transition because something they say is disrespectful to you, you think it's their lowballing you, you think they're trying to play games with you, and you call them out not on on who they are, but what they did and expressed, not rage, you're not picking up like a, a fan and throwing it across the room into a window, but expressing that you're frustrated, you're annoyed, you're pissed, and expressing clearly to the person, the way you're acting towards me makes me want to stop the conversation. That's more effective than any other emotional state in a negotiation, transitioning from being pleased and comfortable and kind, and then saying, wait a second, that's not cool. That pissed me. I'm pissed. You can't talk to me that way. It gets people's attention and it works but here's the cool part. What we know is is that when you ask people who are the target of that anger afterwards, nearly 76% – well, it's actually exactly – 76% of people say because of that person expressing anger towards me, I understood my strengths better and understood my faults better and I'm appreciative for that. And I say this to your listeners because it's a license of this is a great tool. Don't keep it in your sheet 100% of the time out of fear I'm going to upset people and people aren't going to want to spend time with me, support me and help me and give, offer me their wisdom and knowledge.
0: Yeah, that that's fantastic. It actually reminds me of um, nonviolent communication which I'm sure you've read um, or that you're familiar with but one of the tools from nonviolent communication is this really clear owning of the behavior and how that behavior made you feel and claiming that in with the with the conversant so it's not saying you made this you like you're making me feel that way but saying you know what todd what you just did made me feel uncomfortable (laughs) right or and they've got a much stricter framework around that but experiencing that like using that in my relationship with angela and with friends and things like that it's powerful it's powerful stuff because it gets you right to that connection in the conversation that you know exactly where the other partner is and you can actually form partnerships agreements that are based upon rock solid like trust and the person walks away better because there's probably something that they're feeling uncomfortable about too that it just opens that up unfortunately it's not about being comfortable in the conversation it's about getting to you know truth and transparency and some sense of um, forward motion with whatever you're talking about whether it's understanding your partner, whether it's um, agreeing to some future about you like what you're going to do together, whatever that is, again, that becomes the focus, not your comfort, not your happiness, so on and so forth. And I I learned this before I learned nonviolent communication, the hardest context for being um, a functional, mature person was actually being a military leader, because you're always gauging what's the right thing to say in this context. Because if you're too hard-ass, if you're too, like, on people, you'll demotivate them. But if they clearly had just screwed up and you come in and you're all lollipops and butterflies, right, that you lose all sorts of credibility by not saying, hey, we missed the mark here and we're going to, we got to fix it. Go, go, go fix it make it better. And we're not going home until you do, right? It's, It's this weird sort of thing to where that actually motivates people because they can trust you as their leader. They can trust, like, if you say, good job, it's a good job. If you don't say good job, it wasn't a good job, and you they always know where they are. So that transparency in a conversation is really really hard to get to, and it's not about comfort, right?
1: No, and and I like to use the military example because I think in the military and athletics are sometimes the best examples of understanding group dynamics. Is there's another element to that as well, which is, and you know better than me, when you express your disdain because the job wasn't accomplished, that group, the the people that you're leading. Um, and it could just be your household or it could be, you know, the five people on your team that are working to get, you know, a website launch. Uh, those people bond not against you, but they're commiserating together. And this is very interesting thing where, you know, pain is social glue. This is why, I mean, yes, every once in a while a kid dies naked in a chimney from a, you know from an alcohol overdose. But besides those five kids for every decade, uh, the reason that we have hazing in the military and in fraternities and sororities, athletic teams, the real purpose of it is bonding. And they, you know, they didn't read any books on this. They just passed on over generations. They recognize our in group is going to be tighter if we know. And it goes back to this thing you mentioned of trust. If we know that we can go through hardships together, and you've seen my C game on the field, and you're still cool with me, and I am not what I do on the field today, I'm not what I'm going to do on the field tomorrow. If I fumble the ball, you're still cool with me. If I am the, you know, the person that's loafing on this task, you're still going to. We're still going to be friends. The only way that I know that for sure, and it's not lip service, is us to actually have a difficult task together. And I think, if you think about what we do in terms of schooling and educating people and even educating our own teams on projects, we often try to provide some sort of shield away from mistakes, not failures, but difficult, challenging hardships, where it's going to require a stage, Seth Godin calls it the dip, to some sort of stage where we are lesser than we thought we were going to be. We're not as smart as we thought. We underestimated the market. Um, we were underestimated our competitors. We moved too slowly. And to go through that together makes you stronger. And you know, nobody wakes up and says like, "Where's my dose of pain?" Yet we know that this is what makes teams gel.
0: Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> some people ask me about like when they're doing group events or something like that, like how to get the people to bond. And it sounds like crazy advice, but I'm like, honestly, if you want that team to bond, or you want that group to bond, put them through some shit. Like, <laughs> if you put them through some shit, and they will, they will bond, and they will come out transformed. Like, if it's just all sort of like, you know, and this is nothing against yogis or sort of the mindfulness community, but if it's all too chill and too lame, like, they'll have very sort of pleasant bonds with each other. But when the, t- when the going gets tough, they've not tested that bond and they'll look out and they'll reach out for other people. But if you put them through something, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, I said put them through some shit. But if you put them through a challenge that they're all committed in and they're all committed in the group's success, they will walk away from that challenge and know that in future context that that, challenge, that, that bond is still there. That's why you have vets that went through you know, deployment together or went through basic training. I still know some of the guys that I went to freaking basic training with, right? And and have conversations with them. Why? Because we went through some stuff together and we were there for each other. It's it's so it's this weird thing. Like and I'll ask you as a you know as a researcher here, um, no one wakes up in the morning and wants to go through stuff like that. Yet we know it's part of our thriving. So what do we do to generate sort of that without necessarily like, you know, just being masochist all the time?
1: Well, I mean this, this is essentially what we try to tackle with this book. I, I think – so there's no one answer and if, if I felt that there was one answer as we mentioned before, if there's a cookie cutter sheet and you should treat me as a charlatan. One answer is we have to be knowledgeable of our biases about what emotion and thoughts are acceptable and which emotions and thoughts are unacceptable. You know, this weekend I was giving a talk at this um Virginia Girls Summit and it was for um, for all middle school and high school girls in the area and it was really great because I'm raising three daughters and it makes you become a feminist real quickly and develop <laughs> really strong arms and really strong pec muscles very quickly. It was, um, and I gave a workshop of vulnerability strength and I didn't want to talk about body image or substance use or peer pressure because everybody was. I wanted to talk about why some of these emotions that you don't like and I don't like are actually the most important things to have in our world. And I had them write down on a piece of paper um, the thought that their mind tells them that they don't want anyone in the room to find out. And I wanted them to crumple it up and put it in their pocket and just keep it there for the entire workshop. And, and I said, only share it if you feel you're comfortable with the uncomfortableness of this with another person. And what I was interested in was at the end of the workshop, and I asked them, I'm just curious, over the course of today, who shared their vulnerability? And this girl raised her hand and said, there were five of us that, one by one, we shared with each other. And the secret was that they all had the same thing on the piece of paper, right? And this is kind of the big thing, like what if we all had the same secret that we're holding in our pocket of, I don't want anyone to know I'm on antidepressants, and I'm fine, it's working for me. But I don't want anyone to have a ready-made excuse for why I'm not always cheerful when I'm at work. I don't want everyone to think it's it's the depression as opposed to just like everybody else, the hummus was horrible at lunchtime and I ate it like everyone else and I'm kind of feeling like in a funky mood. And these girls had written down, I'm worried that people will reject me because they don't think I'm interesting. Some variant of that, almost every girl in the room had the same kind of thing on their piece of paper, right? If I'm not interesting, if I'm not entertaining, if I'm not funny, and you think about the pressure that is. I mean, you know, someone asked my co-author once, Robert and I were on a panel, and they asked him, um, who's your, you know, who's your, who are your heroes? And I said Richard Feynman, because, um, as the Nobel Prize winning physicist, this was a guy who, as you said, you talk about, um, Fox versus the Hedgehog. This was, I mean, this was the fox because here he is helping NASA to make sure there's not a shuttle shuttle disaster. Here he's the master of picking locks, and here he wins Nobel Prize for quantum physics. He said, "Stand up comedians. I mean, you thought you think about the difficulty of getting someone to smile in a genuine way just because you're having a conversation, and a comedian has to make people actually physically laugh, and that's their commodity." And once that joke's over, they have to go for the next bit of currency, or they're are they are basically empty over the course of fifteen minutes. That's an incredibly difficult endeavor. No, I mean, I just think of how few times I laugh in a given week, like really laugh <laughs> in a given week. You know, yep. doing this. Um, so you know, the science to get to uh, for us to be more tolerant of distress, to understand what are your biases, like, you know, which emotion are you the least comfortable expressing, which emotion are you the least comfortable experiencing when someone shares it with you. Which emotion do you think when you have it, you're going to go out of control? How long do you think anger lasts when you experience How long do you think guilt is going to last if you end up doing something wrong, wrong and someone calls you on it? And Once you recognize what beliefs you hold and you test them and experiment, you, people often realize that these beliefs hold them back from experiencing distress because they think. If I get angry, I'm really worried I'm going to hit somebody and we know that's extremely rare for the majority of people and if I feel guilty, I'm going to want to hide from those people in my life and I'm not going to want to see my aunts and uncles again when they feel, make me feel guilty because I haven't called them for six months because they're so boring to talk to on the phone and what you realize is when you do feel guilty, you, what we know is and we know this by studying prisoners, prisoners that feel guilty during their time in jail, are almost 80% like less likely to show recidivism when they experience this guilt. So all the idea that you're supposed to experience meaning and joy and transcendent emotions such as awe and tranquility and not anxiety and guilt and embarrassment, well these things have a purpose. They remind us Recognizing how other people think and take their perspectives, and we get embarrassed when we think that we did something that made us look foolish or made someone else look foolish. And so, know those beliefs, and you could start to experiment more comfortably with being outside your comfort zone.
0: Yeah, that's a lot there. There's a lot there. Um, it made me think because you know I've been thinking about this as I've been reading the book and. Since, I don't know, let's say over the last 30 years where we really do have a comfort addiction around a lot of different things, right? Um, There's also been a growing workaholism that we've experienced in about that same amount of time, right? And so a lot of times what will happen with people as we start talking about what they're doing, what they really want is their aspiration is more free time, more leisure time, more downtime except for when you look at their momentary experiences of, don't, of downtime where there's nothing to do, there's nobody to talk to, there's no work demands, there's nothing. People are actually miserable during those periods of time, right? They're actually so miserable that they'd rather go back and do the thing that they said that they didn't want to do more of. And, you know, I've been thinking about that whole thing because being we, we have lost the ability to be by ourselves because in some ways it's uncomfortable. It's just you, and then you get to, like, talk to yourself. And if you don't have a good script, a good mental script – um, you're your own worst enemy. And so it's it's very fascinating because the more that we get comfortable with guilt, shame, embarrassment, frustration, you know, all those little discomforts, in a weird way, we actually find our happiness. And that's what I loved about the book, like, the, you know, the extrapolation of the book is that without focusing on those things, um, I'm, I'm going to let you say it because you're going to say it much, you know, more intelligently than I am. Without making room for those things, we can't experience a rich thriving. There's, there's sort of like this hollow happiness that we have without the grounding of what it's attached to, the dark side as it were. Um, so.
1: I love the way you describe it.
0: <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take it from there. Um, you mentioned discomfort and, and mindsets and beliefs that are holding us back. I'm curious, what mindsets and beliefs are you currently working through yourself that you think are holding you back from your own potential?
1: Oh, that's a great one. Well, let me tell you one of the the challenges that I've been facing. This is the first book that I really wrote with another person. And I'll come back to this because it all runs full circle. And the thing about writing with Robert Biswas-Diener, my co-author, is – and I'm just being candid. Do not say anything. I'm not looking for a pity treatment here. This is a guy and this is why I chose him as a co-author. He's smarter than me. He's more creative than me. He's a better storyteller than me. He definitely has more social coot than me, but the bar is pretty low for that one, for these things. And so working with him was, was really challenging. I mean, it was, it was it was to try to live up to the expectations of what Robert was producing as a co-op on a regular basis was, uh, was difficult. It, it was an added level of anxiety. Besides trying to convert the science and synthesize decades of work together in a way that people can have a few tips they can hold on to to improve their lives, and then make sure that it. It did have scientific basis a backing for it, which means that I can talk about multiple studies that can say, yes, this is not an op-ed. We did not pull this out of our assholes. This is actually a true way we know that when you're narcissistic and you're not striving to attack your rivals, you're not striving to beat your rivals, but your narcissism comes from striving to be unique because you feel you have qualities that should be admired and strengths. That should that warrant attention and appreciation. That side of narcissism, the narcissistic striving for uniqueness, which makes you competitive, which makes you um, high energy, which makes you uh, try to attain visionary goals. That's great stuff. That's the charisma and self-assuredness that attracts other people's. Now, once you take in the narcissism about tr- worrying about rivals and trying to always making sure that nobody steals the mantle and the and the podium from you, that part of narcissism in terms of everyone else is a minion and I will only talk to CEOs and best-selling authors and people that are nines or tens on a beauty scale and a ten-point scale, that part of narcissism will interfere with relationships. But when we did this research and I had to deal with all this stuff, you know, this, this competition with, with Robert. And so I think the... The thing that I work with that I have struggled with and, I'm, and I enjoy the struggle and actually saying it out loud is actually more comfortable is, um, is I'm always comparing myself to people that are brilliant and great and creative and I always see holes and flaws in my personality and what I'm doing and it's very uncomfortable uh, but it makes me strive to constantly push for better content and I think um, if I didn't acknowledge that the envy that I experience which is they have gifts that I wish I had it wouldn't motivate me as hard as I as I do and I wouldn't be stopping with awards or books or journal articles I would I can't rest on my laurels because I see so much greatness around me
0: That's brilliant How did you like how did you work through that discomfort though like because I'm with her, I'm in the same way where we talk to a lot of really brilliant people. So I'm on the I'm on the Todd side of the Todd Robert thing. I'm like, wow, like Todd is. This is his second book. Curious. The first book was great. Then he's got all these articles. So I get that that comes up. But how did you personally work through that shadow stuff?
1: Well, one is my wife is my best therapist. So she's really good about recognizing that. A, a mantra that I have and I try to hold is. The difference between assessing and judging, and we have this idea that we're supposed, and we have, we have, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about the tyranny of mindfulness. That people really have this belief that mindfulness is the panacea for all life's ills, and you know, there's so many articles and covers of Time magazine, and you see Tibetan monks, and we put them on a pedestal. If only I could master consciousness. If only I could have a quiet mind, and so I can be. With myself at any point in time, in any emotional state, and never be in disarray, then I can take myself to the next level. And one of the things that we've discovered is you can't be mindful all the time. It's not possible, and you don't want to. You know, when my wife sends me on a run to buy tampons for her at CVS, I don't want to be mindful. I don't want to like notice how everyone's looking at me and wondering. Is, is it for me am I you know am I transgendered you know um, um, am I you know am I completely submissive in my relationship um, the cashier who's a 17 year old girl who's very attractive is looking at these Maxi pads and me and kind of wondering what's going on there I don't want to be mindful I want to get the task done get out of CBS my wife will appreciate it and move on to point seven of my day and finish point six of my day um, and the same way is it, in conversations, one of the things that makes conversations difficult is when people are mindful and completely open and receptive to everything that's happening in the present moment, they often aren't candid about how they're feeling. and We have research that we talk about, which is that people who try really hard not to be prejudiced or stereotypical when they're talking to someone of a different race and try to be really mindful and open and receptive, they end up be acting in very racist ways. Because by not talking about race, everything they do has to do with the race. Because their conversation is clearly different, their voice, their conversation is staccato. There's no smooth and fluid, fluid, you know, switching off of you take the floor and then I take the floor. You're very careful with your words, and if you to undermine the intelligence of someone with another race, that you're clearly choosing your words carefully and think they don't notice. That to me is like that's where the racism comes from. Is when you're trying so hard to be someone that you're not in that moment that you're not that lack of genuineness prevents you from having a good social interaction and the research is really clear that when we are a little bit more impulsive and mindless which is i'm just going to say whatever i'm thinking but i'm going to try not to be an asshole. people of a different race view you as more open more kind more likely is someone that they want to be in a relationship with and they want to see you a second time and they actually move their chair physically closer to you when you're impulsive and candid as opposed to trying to be mindful and gentle and you know this research really informs the way that I think for interventions which is I try really hard to be candid you know it's part of my bio I say the things people don't they want to say but they're afraid to say as you know if I have thoughts about people's Prolesticizing a particular view. If um, my next door neighbor tends to be um, a very religious person, I'm not. I don't mind it at all. But when he tells my kids that um, they should believe in God, I say something. It's not appropriate. It's potentially dangerous for the relationship. But in the end, we become closer because we can have that conversation, and, and we are close because of these things.
0: Yeah. Um, but back to how you work through your your stuff with. Robert, though. Um, that was all great. That was all great. I'm, I'm just going to hold this spot here. There's a little bit of discomfort here. Um, what was the process for you?
1: I talk about it. I talk about it to Robert. Um, I talk about it to Sarah. You know, I'm candid about these things. I talk about it to my students. When I teach a class, I always talk about the imposter syndrome. Um, I always talk about brilliant people that, you know, we're reading. This is a person that I wish I could be like them for X reasons. They're clear writing, they have great analogies, they are emotionally provocative storytellers. I use them as an exemplar of what I'd like to be. And I think by being open about that regularly, it's honest and it also helps my personal growth. And it's it's a reminder. It's a forced humility that just pushed on myself. Not the one where, where you know you always see people win awards or the Olympic medals and they get up there and saying, you know, I'm I'm so humbled to win this, which makes no sense to me. Um, but if you were to say you know, that person's form when they're running, I wish I could match that form, but I don't have the discipline to actually keep on experimenting. That's humility. And I think I constantly, by spotting people's strengths and pointing that out, it ends up being, ends up being that level, that helps me deal with where are my inadequacies. And it helps me recognize where my strengths are at the same time. Recognize like, okay, I don't have that I don't have the fast twitch fibers. I can't really run fast. I've got the slow twitch, but I can lift massive amounts of weight at the same time. At the same time, I could point out I need that person on my team because they complement me perfectly, and because of that, I, end up, I think I end up forming more collaborations and stronger relationships with a large number of people because I can point out my deficiencies and where their strengths are. Are. So this is – you know, this is one of the ways of working out your emotional beliefs that are, that are challenging for you is to make a public proclamation. This is where social media becomes effective and we have a lot of research to show this, which is when you put on social media, um, I'm going for, for optimal health this year of my life. And here are the four things I'm working towards holding me accountable. Even if they forget, it's now have a written record. People have seen it even if all you get is a thumbs up, you will be more likely to devote effort to it. Now, whether you're successful is is inconsequential, because really the action that affects our fulfillment in life is that we devote effort to it. We can't control the end game.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. You know what I love about that is Especially, you know, I'm 34 here, and so I grew up at the early part of the, like, you're perfect movement as far as kids go. Like, you're perfect in every way. And so you learn, you don't learn to look at someone else and say, you know what, they've got something. And honestly, like, full assessment, say, they've got strengths that I don't have, right, that I, that I lack. We can understand that human, you know, human potential is malleable. Like, you can pick up those strengths with enough work and discipline but you don't really learn that that it's healthy to say you know what Todd is really brilliant at these things and i want to be more like Todd and at the same time assess that you know what i've got my own things going i don't have to be defective or deficient because i i i lack what Todd has at the same time that there are things about Todd that i would like to have and then the question and maybe this is just my mindset around making it making an actual action I like those things. I aspire to have those things. Am I willing to put in the work it takes to get there? And um, I think the reason that's hard for people is because if you say no, then you basically have said, okay, well, like you've taken responsibility for just having this gap between what you are and what you could be. And you say yes, well, then you got to put your ass on the line and make it happen, you know, um, which is a whole nother matter. Well, there's, there's two important things about this. One is, You know the conversation has moved so
1: much to the direction of let's focus on strengths. You think of Best Buy, right? Best Buy has kind of made it made their business their business model around if a sales clerk ends up being on the floor where things are chaotic and um, you know where we have placements for new CDs, new movies, new refrigerators, it's not making money, and they see a better way to shift it based on their behavior and their strengths of recognized situational awareness, which. Advertisements work best where in the store for sales transactions. They can move up to a manager instantaneously. In that conversation, of focus on strengths, we forget weaknesses are something to share to cherish, not for pity treatment, not because I want Charlie. You know, I want you to throw a compliment and say, "Oh no, no, you're a good storyteller, just like Robert." No, 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 you're you're creative, just like Robert. Not for that reason, of just an honest assessment, which is these are things I will never get to that level, but. As you said about the behaviors, what's the action point? If I reverse engineer someone who's a great storyteller, I could see, okay, one thing they do that I don't, I'm going to work on is comes early and doesn't get buried in the details of a story. And so right off the bat, I'm going to say something emotionally provocative about a character in the story when I give a TED talk, when I'm in front of a thousand people, so that you want to know more about a person. And that's what a good storyteller does. And they don't wait until they have you for fifteen minutes. They've got to get you in fifteen seconds. And Robert's really good at that. Now I can mimic that behavior. And you did slowly-
0: mimic that behavior today.
1: <laughs> and I could slowly like add in. I'm like, okay, so now I'll find my own style with that and develop on that. So as opposed to thinking of, I'm low on this strength. Let me focus on something else. I'm going to pull a few behaviors. I'm going to add to my arsenal such that my personality gets more sophisticated and complicated even if I don't define myself as creative and a good storyteller.
0: Yeah. What I love about it is, from my perspective, and I don't have the research to back it, but it makes you a really good student of life because when you do that, you're like, you know what? That is what makes them successful, or at least that's what seems to make it successful. How can I teach myself to do those types of things? So it makes you in a really good way it's like constructively observant about what's going on and then you could say you know what yes i'm going to do those two or three things and you know that really propels you towards a thriving lifestyle which is kind of where we started like how do we flourish right one is to be a really good student of life and and to be be able to teach yourself and apply those skills and keep going because you don't have the blinders on you don't have the positivity blinders where it's like you can't see anything because you know because um, if you look at things just the wrong way, it's not the beautiful side, right? Um, and so I, I think that's what it really helps us do is, is to really, um, I don't know, become happy. <laughs> How about that? Well, what's
1: cool, what I like about this conversation is we're pulling back platitudes to getting into takeaways. You can What's the smallest unit of change you can engage in tomorrow? As opposed to you know, the platitude, which is don't be the smartest person in the room, which is a great bit of advice which is reverse engineer someone that's smarter than you in the room and what's a specific behavior that you can mimic and take into your into your repertoire when you walk out of that room or when you're in, when you're interacting with people in that room. You know, then it's to move from motivation to an actual implementation plan.
0: Yeah, well, and it goes back, right? Because this goes way back in our history of Western culture. I normally don't go philosophy on the the podcast, but here we go. Like, you know, there's a whole Aristotelian, we become by doing. That's not actually what he said, but it's actually a, a good way to think about it. We become virtuous through repetitive action, as opposed to more the platonic idea, which is like you're virtuous and you do the things that virtuous, like because you're virtuous, you do those things much more Aristotelian in the sense of all this mimicry, all this sort of like gradual implementation and in, in integration of habits and mindsets and things like that. Eventually, you are those things because you've been doing them. And that's really the secret. You become by doing. So what are you doing?
1: Well, and I would add one thing to to Aristotle, which is often when we look at other people and we we view them as mentors, wise counsel, or someone that I want to form a partnership with or collaborate with, is we focus on what they bring to the room at that point in time. And The thing is, sometimes we need to have much of a, a longer review. and Because some of the behaviors that are required to be successful and productive, whether it's, I mean, writing a book, the amount of time, I mean, the amount of aggression that comes out and the amount of teams were letting off steam that we can't even we're not even able to verbalize on a podcast or anything other than in an Irish pub. Um, a requirement is to be incredibly selfish. You know, you gotta steal time away. You know, there are so many meetings I didn't go to and so much flack that I received from my psychology department, and there's so many students that were upset at me because I didn't answer all their phone calls, and so I looked selfish and arrogant and quarrelsome. Those were Behavioral requirements to get the tasks that were most meaningful to me at that point in time. Get the long lens. You recognize that this was a labor of love, and I brought in lots of people. And um, there's a lot of great researchers who that I that I talk about, and I, I share their work, and I want to give them a platform so people know the non-celebrities in science who are doing amazing things that people should be inviting them for talks. And it's not me and Robert. And so you know depending on where you put your magnifying glass you could really misunderstand the love compassion and kindness that's out there in the you know in the business and cr- the business world and the world of creators
0: yeah that's as a general rule that's why when people start you know judging and evaluating people's actions i'm like we have no idea what their intent is we have no idea what game they're playing we you know and we always want to compare other people's behaviors You know, with our projections of our of of intentions and the other way around, like when we do something, we want people to look at our intentions and not our behavior. So it's like, you know what, like there's just a lot you don't know. There's a lot you don't know. And although that's not helpful when it comes to evaluating things, it's like, how about you watch your own lane and focus on what you're building? Um, Do that instead, because that's really all you've got anyways. Absolutely. Alrighty. So the book we've been talking about, I mentioned it earlier, it's going to be in the show notes, is The Upside of Your Dark Side, um, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. So I want to make sure to give Todd and Robert another plug on this. This is really a phenomenal book, guys. You you definitely want to run out and pick this up. So what's next for you, Todd?
1: That's a good question. I I know it's not going to be another book. It's not going to be straightforward. I am in the midst of conversations with somebody else about doing children's books. Um, the notion is a three-part piece to it, which is there's all these great psychological ideas. Actually, you, you just named one before, which right before this, which is called the fundamental attribution error, which is a great, great example to play with. Which is when someone else trips and falls while they're walking, we think they're a klutz, and when it's us, we're like, well, yeah, the the ground is uneven. Like, what horrible architects we have, like in this area here. Um, I want to create with weird animals, Tasmanian devils and um, you know, naked moles, obviously as characters, that have a children's book about every, each book being a different psychological principle that an idea would be laid out, there would be a guide for the parents of how to communicate this to their kids and have a conversation, and then there would be kind of an entry for the parents for their own lives of how to improve their own lives with this principle. So that's one thing that I'm thinking about and probably going to be involved in. Um, the other one is really kind of stepping up the the workshops and the public speaking that I'm doing, and, and one thing is you know, there's this gluttony of happiness consultants, chief happiness officers, and I know you're a philosopher. I mean, you know, I often think of Marxism when I when I think of the this happiness obsession of people coming into an organization and saying, I want you guys to be happier when you work, and we're not going to talk about the conditions that you have problems with, we're not going to talk about the barriers to work-life balance, and we're not going to talk about your physical health, we're going to talk about just being more engaged, have more fun, smile more, and have more kindness in the office, and we'll just think that the environment doesn't matter at all. And I think that we're offering you know, these workshops which are a compliment, a complimentary view, is instead of trying to be positive, what tool, psychological tools and parts of your personality are essentially useful, exactly the thing you wanna harness for the task at hand. And we're teaching people of, don't think, don't split anything into this is the positive part of your personality the negative, which is, it depends on what is the function of this part of your personality right now for the thing that you're involved in. And so it's, you know, we're working with um, uh, the Marines, um, with the new commandant there. We're we're working with um, CBP, which is Customs and Border Patrol. We have, we're going to meet with Standard Chartered Bank next year, and um, I hope that to bring this out and roll this out to a lot of other organizations.
0: That sounds fantastic. Both sound fantastic. Both really sound fantastic. So I'm excited. I'm excited because, well, you know, people listening can't see Todd's face, but there's, a, there's just as a notice, there was a difference between you talking about the kids' books and your face and talking about sort of the, the latter consulting work. Um, and not that you ask for feedback on it, but both are really, really valuable, and I wanna see both come to fruition. And I can see why you're the guy to do both, right? It's no weirdness about why would you do children's books all of a sudden. Totally makes sense to me. So I look forward to seeing both of those projects come up. Um, what's one thing you wanna leave people with today? Let me leave with this
1: message, that I think one of the problems with create, trying to improve creativity and productivity and life fulfillment is we want to see human beings in a certain light. We want to see what's the best in humanity as opposed to what human beings are actually like. And the only way that we're gonna change the world, the only way that we're gonna reach our potential is understanding how humans actually are. And that means that some of the qualities that are not so socially acceptable to talk about in polite companies such as narcissistic admiration, selfishness, anger, Boredom, guilt, mindlessness is exactly why humans evolved the way they are over twenty thousand years, and is exactly what we need. So let's not prematurely rule out any of our psychological tools. Let's keep them all there and ready for use at any given moment.
0: Boom! That's Todd Caston. Thanks so much for joining us today, Todd. I, um, you can find him at toddcaston.com, I believe, is your website, um, where that's where you publish. Some of your stuff, again, the book is The Upside of Your Dark Side. You're also on Twitter, at Todd Cashton. These will all be in the show notes, so if you um, if you now have a man crush on Todd like I do, you can check out the show notes and, and learn more about him and his work. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, so awesome to be here. Thanks for listening to The Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, Creative Giant.